This is the NC Everything Podcast, a show where we talk about everything that has anything to do with North Carolina. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 21 of the NC Everything Podcast. Now, if you're new to the show, this is a weekly podcast, and every week we talk about, well, North Carolina. And after listening to me a while, if you're interested in listening to my other episodes, you can go to www.thencevertingpodcast.com and click on the episodes link. And there, you'll hear my past 20 episodes that cover... Moonshine, The Carol A. Deering, Pepsi, Bigfoot, State Fair, Blackbeard, The Halloween Special, NC Films, Tweetsy, Pinehurst, Jockey's Ridge, Hillsborough, Hardy's, Bojangles, and Biscuitville, that's all in one episode, Biltmore, my end of the year special, Fort San Juan, The Walton War, Brunswick Town, Moorhead Planetarium, and The Road to Nowhere. And no, I don't read that list every episode, um, but I do have 20 episodes behind me. I'm still a, a pretty new podcast, as you can see, but... If you were able to get anything off that list, I read as, as quickly as I could, and you're interested, definitely go check them out at the website. Also at the website, you can find links to contact me. And I say in every episode, I want you to contact me, reach out to me, say, Hey, say bye. Say you love me. Say you hate me. Love the show or hate the show. That is, but I want to hear from you. So I know you're out there listening. Also, and lastly, about my self-promotion, um, you can like me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I admit, I'm not much of a Facebooker, Instagrammer, or Twitterer, but I'm trying to do better about promoting the show and, and just reaching out to you guys, because I ask you in every episode to reach out to me. Um, so yeah, definitely go there and, and follow or like or social media me, and um uh, I'll try to get in touch with you if I see you on there. Now, before we get into the, the feature episode, I, I will have to say, um, this is going to be the first episode I've done of its kind. And what I mean is, um, this is going to be a listener discretion podcast. I haven't had any yet where I really had to warn you about too much. Um, but definitely I'm going to read a little listener discretion warning that I wrote up. Um, because I took the time to write it up, but you are warned. Also, when I publish this show, I'll most likely have to click the explicit, explicit button when I, when I post it on my hosting site, um, that may come with a, its own explicit warning. If I don't catch that and, and work around that in time, you may actually get two explicit warnings on this, this, uh, episode. And if you do, I apologize, and I will know that when I go back and listen, and it won't happen again. And with that being said, let's get on into the Tuscarora War. Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains references to sexual assault, as well as descriptions of torture, murder, and the brutality that comes with war. General Tecumseh Sherman may or may not have said, war is hell. Some say he did, but even Sherman himself wasn't sure if he said it or not. But either way, it is very true. I think now, in modern warfare, we are numb to the horrors that war brings. The weapons hit their target a very long way away from the man who fired them. The battlefields are in places that we don't have connections to, and the casualties are forgotten way too quickly. But researching this episode reminded me of how horrible war can actually be, 
when it's truly hand-to-hand and it's in your town, in your community, and on your farm. I want to entertain my listeners, but this is an everything podcast. If I'm going to be true to my title, then you are bound to get stories that haunt you long after you have closed your device. And now, I'll tell you about the Tuscarora War. I do want to start out by saying that it's actually the Tuscarora Wars. If you listen to the whole episode, or episodes, this might actually be a two-parter, but if you listen to the whole subject matter, um, you'll find that the second war started almost as immediately as the first one pretty much ended. So it's really two wars, but they kind of run together. Now, when I first started researching what turned out to be this episode, um, I was actually just going to do a biography on John Lawson. But researching John Lawson uh, led me to research the Tuscarora War. And so I ended up just doing it on the Tuscarora War. However, actually, Tuscarora War, that's going to be a trick to say through this episode. I can see that. But anyway, um, ended up... It ended up being the Tuscarora War, but since I did research John Lawson, when I get to him, I'll give you a little backstory on him. In fact, there'll probably be a few areas in this show, in this episode, where it sounds like I'm digressing. Um, there's a whole lot to say here, so I don't mean that I don't mean to digress, but um, I found it necessary. All right, here we go. Before I can tell you about the Tuscarora, I got to mention the Iroquois. Now, according to Britannica, the Iroquois, and I quote, the Iroquois are any member of Northern American Indian tribes speaking a language of the Iroquoian family. Now, the Iroquoian family, according to Britannica, is, quote, a family of about 16 North American Indian languages aboriginally spoken around the eastern Great Lakes and in parts of the Middle Atlantic states and in the south. Now, even though the Iroquois were a tribe of their own, there was the Iroquois Confederacy. It was also called the Haudenosaunee, or the Iroquois Five Nations, or the Iroquois League. And if I um, mispronounce that, for any Native American listeners out there, um, strap in, because I'm going to probably be mispronouncing a few things in this episode. Anyway, the five tribes that made up the Iroquois Five Nations were the Onan, oh, the Onondaga, the Mohawk, the Cayuga, the Oneida, and the Seneca. Now, I'm sure some of you right now, if you know your history, are screaming that it was the Iroquois Six Tribes. Or some of you might be going, well, where's the Tuscarora come in? Well, eventually, the Iroquois adopted the Tuscarora, and so the Tuscarora became the Sixth Tribe in the Iroquois Six Nations. But we're not going to jump ahead. Just hang in there. All right, back to the Iroquois for a second. Around 500, around the year 500, the Iroquois began migrating from what from what today is New York. They began migrating south. And this migration, these people in this migration, they're the ones that made up the Tuscarora, among other tribes, but that's where the Tuscarora came from. By the way, you might hear me mention the Cherokee in here. Um, I am working on an episode, actively working on it right now, actually, about the Cherokee. Um, that, that episode is coming. I hadn't forgot about them, and I'm, I'm really anxious to do that episode. I just want to do it right, so I'm, I'm really taking my time. So, Tracy, if you're listening, 
I'm not loafing around. I promise you, I am working. Okay. Around the late 1500s, which would be around the time the Roanoke colony was lost, um, the Tuscarora occupied most of the intercoastal plain of North Carolina. I'm really going to struggle, guys, with Tuscarora, so it might sound different every time I say it. I'm just warning you. My mouth acts like it doesn't want to work when I say that word. Anyway, at one time, the Tuscarora were considered one of the most powerful native tribes in North Carolina. And I'm getting that information from John Lawson's journal. Um, it's been printed and I've read it. Um, it's really interesting. I don't know if I'd recommend it because it's, it's kind of a hard read. It's written in a, a different dialect, really. And whoever published a book, I think it's uh, Forgotten Books, published a book I got. They decided to go with a really small font, so it's it's not too too easy to read, but it was very, very fascinating. And so in the book, or in the journal, he takes a, a really long trip, which I'm going to describe in a minute, through, uh, through South Carolina and North Carolina, and he describes the natives he met and kind of their customs, how they lived, and he also goes through and describes all the plants and animals he found along the way. Anyway, I'll probably be referencing his, his journal throughout this episode, um, and I'll let you know when I do, like right now. In John Lawson's book, he describes the Tuscarora as a warring tribe, and he talks like all they do is war all the time. They live for it. But to be honest with you, in my research of, of the Tuscarora War, um, I don't think they necessarily went to war any more than other nations, uh, Native American nations went to war. I will say here, you should probably, um, if you decide to read the book or even in this podcast, when I tell you about John Lawson's book, um, that's not the gospel. I'd kind of take it with what they call a grain of salt. The reason is a lot of John Lawson's writings are actually propaganda. John Lawson owned a whole lot of land in the new world and he was hoping to sell it. And the best way to sell it is to get people to move here. And, and if you want people to move here, you got to convince them that it's a nice place. However, you might be thinking, well, a warring tribe doesn't sound so nice. That kind of plays more toward the Christians. Um, if they believe there's a bunch of savages over here that need saving, that should make them ever more anxious to get over here to the new world and do God's work. So moving on, during the era that I'm going to be talking about, the Tuscarora territory was made up of three regions, the upper towns, the middle towns, and the lower towns. The middle towns were kind of a blend of upper and lower, so I won't talk about them too much. Um, but the upper towns and the lower towns are the, the most important parts you need to remember. Now, the upper towns were led by Chief Tom Blount, B-L-O-U-N-T. And yes, that sounds like a European name. I couldn't find if he had any sort of Native American name or not. But that was Chief Tom Blount. Now, I'll be talking about a bunch of different names in this episode, but I'll remind you who they are when I bring them up. But Chief Tom Blount and his people, they occupied sites along the Upper Noose, Tar, and Roanoke Rivers. Now, these people got along really well with the English settlers, or any settlers, really, because they had a, a really profitable trade system set up with uh, northern North Carolina and southern Virginia and most of the Native American tribes in the area. Now, the lower towns, they were led by Chief Hancock, and yes, I doubt his Native American name was Hancock, um, but that's all I could really find on, on his name, Chief Hancock. Well, Chief Hancock and his people, 
they lived on the lower Noose River and Katechna Creek. Now, Katechna Creek is now um, Contentnia. Um, I I think the first one was easier. Um, Anyway, they were uh, less disposed to tolerate English settlers. They were constantly being harassed by the English, and I'm going to go into detail what relations were like between the the southern towns and the English, but um, your relations were really in bad shape, and these relations are exactly what led up to the Tuscarora War. Keep in mind that the heart of these lower towns, which was a place called Catechnia or Fort Hancock, they were really, really close to Bath and Newburn. So here's some of the problems with the relations between English and the southern towns at that time. Um, one of the major ones was slavery. Now, I'm going to mention slavery a few times in this episode. Um, when I say slavery, I don't mean African-Americans, or I guess back then Africans. I mean Native American slaves. Now, African slaves were a thing, um, and when they pop up in this episode, I'll say African slave. But throughout this episode, if I say just slave, I'm talking about a Native American slave. Got me? Okay. So, fur was a really profitable trade good, but the real money was in slavery. You see, they had indentured servants, and the way indentured servitude works is somebody does something for you or you owe them money, well, you're going to go work on their farm until your debt is paid off or worked off. Well, then you're free to go. Now, that don't sound too shabby, does it? But think about this. These English were coming here to the New World and there weren't many cleared lots unless the Native Americans had cleared a spot for their settlements. So a lot of this was wooded. It was um, overgrown. It was a nasty place in, in a lot of areas. The good news was there was a whole lot of indentured servants showing up. The reason is, is they wanted to come over to the New World. They couldn't pay for it. And so some sailor would say, hey, I'll pay for your ride over to the New World, and you work, you work on my farm for the next four or five years, and then you're free to go. Sounds like a a pretty good time, right? Except that these English settlers showed up in North Carolina and only a few hours into clearing humongous trees and and flattening land and getting everything ready, uh, the mosquitoes would have ate the hell out of them. And the heat, a lot of them would pass out and a lot of them did pass away. They couldn't take the heat and the mosquitoes and, you know, eastern North Carolina can be pretty swampy. So a lot of these farmers put their heads together and they were thinking, we need some servants over here that are used to the heat. And I guess one day, I don't know who it was, but one day somebody said, well, what about the savages that live out in the woods? They, they live here. They're used to the heat and they can be indentured servants their entire life because, well, they're savages. We're doing them a favor if we bring them in and civilize them by working the hell out of them on our plantation. And of course, everybody thought that was just a splendid idea. And so they were capturing Native Americans and they would either put them to work on their property or they'd sell them to somebody else and they'd work on their property. Or in a lot of cases, they were put on a ship and sold to Cuba to go work in the sugar plantations. And I can tell you that sugar was doing really well back then and sugar plantations were humongous. I've even read that there is not a single confirmed case of a Native American returning from the sugar plantations in Cuba. That's how bad and brutal that work was. And this wasn't um, big, grown, cock diesel Native Americans they were taking. I mean, I'm sure they would love to have a bunch of those dudes. But no, they were taking men, women, and children to be sold off into slavery. 
one of the major fallouts of this behavior was that um, you got a Native American group or their enemy tribe comes in, kidnaps as many as they can, and instead of selling beaver furs, now they're selling humans to the to the English settlers. So what you'll find out is whole families were broken up or completely vanished, uh, mainly because their enemies found out about how profitable it was to sell the slaves to Cuba. Then there's the rape issue. For some reason, European men thought it was okay to take any native woman they wanted to and have sex with her. John Lawson even wrote in his journal that every time a settler would visit a native village, they were always given a woman to bed with, and after a savage woman laid with a European, she would rarely talk to another savage man again, and this angered the savages. Now, I can only assume that John Lawson was too busy measuring the size of his dick to consider that maybe they were angry over the rape, not jealous over the white man's bedroom skills. I mean, consider this. There is no known evidence of any rape ever occurring among Native Americans at all. Not before the white settlers got here. But if you do a little research, you'll find out that Native men did not see Native women the same way that English men saw English women. In Native communities, the women weren't silent housewives or bed fillers. They were actually considered exceptionally important to the Native communities. And I think some tribes actually let the women pick out who the chief was going to be. But even so, rape became such a problem for natives that the elders would actually choose a woman to sleep with the white men when they came into the village, and this was in an effort to avoid them raping the wives and daughters of prominent members of the settlements. Now you got the trespassers. In Virginia, between the church and the crown, a lot of settlers felt oppressed and started moving south into the Carolinas where there were very few churches and almost no law enforcement. Now they didn't want to be too close to any town, I mean that's kind of what they were trying to get away from. And so they would build a home place way out in the woods. Now they didn't know or they didn't care that those woods might belong to somebody else. So this all raised a pretty good tension amongst the settlers and the natives in the area of New Bern and Bath. But before we go any farther, I want to change gears here and tell you about John Lawson. John Lawson is considered an explorer and a naturalist. He was born in England on December 27th. 1674 in or around London. Now his daddy was a doctor with social connections among scientists, ships, physicians, and explorers. His mama died when he was 16. He went to Gresham College in London. I know this is fast, but um, I'm going to get on to the good stuff, I hope. Anyway, Gresham College offered classes in mathematics and natural science, but it was also home to England's most prestigious organization of scientists, this was called the Royal Society. Now, John Lawson would often attend lectures by these guys, and his life's goals was to make a lot of money and one day be elected to the Royal Society. Now, eventually, John Lawson wanted to go to the New World and, you know, do some exploring over there because if you're a scientist and a naturalist, I mean, what better place than the place where nobody or not many people has ever seen before? Now, at some point, John Lawson had a conversation with a man who, who's traveled, you know what they say, near and far, and he'd been to the New World. And when he found out John Lawson wanted to go visit, he suggested that Carolina was the best place for him to go. As a matter of fact, about that same time, there was a ship that was just about ready to head that way. Now, John Lawson never did say the name of the guy who suggested he go to Carolina, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the man was Christopher Gale. 
And Christopher Gale was a native of Yorkshire and an official in the northern part of Carolina. Although it could have been James Moore from Charlestown, eventually Charleston. Moore was in London seeking the governorship around the time that uh, Lawson boarded the ship to the Carolinas. Also, James Moore was already a friend of John Lawson. Anyway, James Moore gave John Lawson free passage on the ship that was headed for the Carolina coast. They arrived in Charleston on August 15th, 1700, and there James Moore showed Lawson around and kind of introduced him to the colony. Now, four months later, on December 28th, accompanied by five young Englishmen and three native men, plus the wife of one of the natives, he began his trip around the Carolinas, on foot, of course. Now, this trip started in Charleston, and it went about 550 miles, and the trip ended at the Pamlico River near Bath on February 24th, 1701. So the whole trip took him about two months. Now, during this trip, and, and actually after this trip, he was writing in the journal, and that's the book that he published, and that's the book that I read. Now, I do want to say here that if you uh, look at a map of where he traveled at, and I'll try to post one in the show notes, he really only traveled as far west as, as modern-day Guilford County. So there's not a whole lot in his book written about many tribes past there. In fact, I don't think there's anything written in the book about the Cherokee. You know, And we, and we know that Cherokee is a really prominent tribe in North Carolina, but they were up toward the mountains, and John Lawson just never really went that way. Anyway... After his trip was done, he stayed really briefly at uh, Pamlico, and he built a house on some high ground near a creek. And today, that creek is still known as Lawson Creek. And this house he bought was about a half a mile from the native village of Chatoka, and that's at the site of modern Newburn. Now, after staying here a while, he decided to keep on moving. So from here, he went to other places like Roanoke Island, where he kind of checked out the fort built by Sir Walter Raleigh in the 1580s. And there's even evidence to suggest that he went on into Virginia and up to Philadelphia. But during his trip around the Carolinas, he would have went by places that eventually became the modern-day cities of Charlotte, Hillsborough, Raleigh, and Greenville. And moving on through his life, in January of 1707, he becomes the clerk of court and public register of the county. In the same year, he and two other men established a grist mill, now, I forgot to mention that leading up to him opening the grist mill, he worked privately as a land surveyor, and then after 1705, he was a deputy surveyor. Well, in 1708, he became the official surveyor for the Lord's Proprietors, the Lord's Proprietors, and in 1709, he published a map of Carolina. Now, if you're wondering what the Lord's Proprietors are, I'm fixing to tell you. A Lord Proprietor is a person granted a royal charter for the establishment and government of an English colony in the 17th century. The plural form of the word is the Lord's Proprietors or the Lord's Proprietary. And yes, that's a definition out of, uh, out of Webster's, I'm pretty sure. But in short, a handful of British men who were still in England all owned a portion of North Carolina. They were hoping to make a ton of money with the resources that they were hoping to find in North Carolina. But anyway, after John Lawson returned from his voyage around the Carolinas, he acquired a considerable amount of land, like a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of land. Well, in 1706, the assembly incorporated the town of Bath on the banks of the Pamlico River, and this was right on the land that John Lawson owned. So, 
of course, he wanted to sell this land in lots to new settlers to the New World. Well, by September of 1706, he had already sold 13 lots in what would be the oldest town in North Carolina. Now, selling these these little lots off uh, was making him a ton of money, but he knew he needed to attract investors and more people interested in buying land so he could, well, make a ton more money. So, to get this done, in 1708, he returned to England and he stayed there for a year to publish his book, Describing and Promoting North Carolina. Again, that's the book that I read. Now, in 1710, John Lawson returns to North Carolina. He gets here in the spring. Now, this is going to be his last trip to North Carolina, but it's going to be pretty special because he didn't come by himself. He came with several hundred German colonists, and they were going to occupy land on the Neuse River that he had bought and resold to Baron Christoph von Grafenried. Now, don't forget that name. I know it's a mouthful. Baron Christoph von Grafenried. Um, for the rest of this podcast, you'll hear me call him probably Grafenried. But um, he sold that land to Grafenried, and that land would end up becoming North Carolina's second town, Newburn. Now, when John Lawson showed up with the German colonist, um, they landed in Chess at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. And so they had to pretty much walk all the way down to the to where Newburn was ultimately going to go. And so it became really obvious to John Lawson that uh, a road needed to be put in between Chesapeake Bay and Newburn. Now this road that John Lawson envisioned, remember that because that's going to be a key plot point in this story. Now I'll go ahead and tell you, it's going to be a two-part episode. I'm not trying to drag this thing out like the Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings people, but I don't want to take up too much of your time in one week. So this is definitely going to be a two-part episode, but we're not quite done yet. So in the winter of 1711, John Lawson was in New Bern planning a more detailed survey of the water route, not the land route, the water route between the Noose River and the Albemarle Sound. In the last week of January of that year, John Lawson left New Bern and he navigated the shoreline along the south side of the Pamlico and Albemarle Peninsula at the Croatan Sound and the Albemarle Sound. Now, he arrived back in New Bern in August of 1711, and he didn't have very good news. There was really no faster water route between Virginia and Albemarle. And I guess since John Lawson got some bad news, I'll have to give you some bad news. We are at the end of part one of this episode. Now, I promise you, the war is about to begin. I know this was a lot of buildup, and it, it feels like it didn't have a whole lot of payoff, but... This is kind of a complex story. I wanted to make sure going into the war, everybody understood the situation here. And I hope I didn't talk too much and bore the crap out of you. But like I said, I think the buildup was necessary. Now, normally at the end of my episodes, I do another round of self-promotion and, you know, I'll give you kind of a salutation. Um, But this is going to be a two-part. So all I'm going to do is cue the banjo and tell you that I'll talk to you next time. The music in this episode comes from ArchesAudio.com and FreePD.com.